It's playoff weekend. There were two games yesterday, two games today. The first game's already going. I have no idea what's happening there. It doesn't matter. It's not my game. And uh, the Seahawks are the last game of wild card weekend. No matter what happens, we will have lasted longer in the playoffs than three other teams, including the Patriots. So that's a win anyway, right? <laughs> not, to make, not to make too much of, of, of uh, football. It's... I had fun yesterday. I had fun yesterday. I was telling Kuda, this is the way to watch football because we were watching a game that I didn't really care about. I'm not emotionally investing in either one of these teams so I could just watch a fun, good, close game. And I didn't leave feeling, oh, for the rest of the day. So we'll have to watch that later today. I'm not sure how that'll go. But what I wanted to share with you this morning is something that's not unlike playoff football. Because one of the things about the playoffs, every game, the regular season, you've got more games. You've got 16 games total. Everybody gets to play 16 games. We blow this one, we can come back next week. There's always a next week. In the playoffs, there's not always a next week. So in the playoffs, especially when it gets into the fourth quarter and it's a close game and it's tight, you see teams leave everything on the field. You see nothing held back. Everything is out there. Everything is laid out on the table, so to speak. Leave it all on the field, they say. That's playoff time. And there's something about that that ought to leak into our Christian life. Because we don't know that we're in a 16-game season. We don't know that we've got, if, if not today, next week, the following, next year, later on when things, we don't know what time nor opportunity we have. We have the day that the Lord gives us. We have that which he puts us, he puts in our hands and how he leads us in what we do with it. Without fully knowing what tomorrow brings or what difference will come out of that which we do. There's a story in the, in the New Testament, the book of Mark, that... that um, Really bears that out in here, coming, turning, or turning the corner, turning the calendar into a new year. This, this passage is on my heart again. I've, I've shared it here at Brush Prairie before. It's a favorite of mine. About, for about 20 years now, this has been a favorite passage of mine. When I, when I, when I dug in and, and saw for the first time, I think, what was really there? And, it, and it, 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 it changed some things. It realigned my thinking in some way. The first time that I shared this passage with anybody, I shared it with a group of seminary students. Then from there, I shared it in our church in South Africa and with, with, um, with our missionary team there that we worked with in Johannesburg. I, I shared it here at Brush Prairie. I know I gave a message from this passage back in 2006. Somebody I talked to early in the week actually remembered that passage and some things that I said. I said, did I say that then? That's amazing. I didn't remember it. I, 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 probably, I probably have shared this passage with you since 2006, somewhere along the line. And yet I want to turn to it again. It's the, it's the story of the broken bottle. It's a story of somebody who... who who is willing to, to extravagantly worship the Lord in ways that don't make sense to others because she trusts that Jesus 
is going to vindicate her extravagant service of worship, that Jesus is going to be the one to define the true measure of its worth, that Jesus himself is going to reward her extravagantly. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. So we were in Mark chapter 14 around the Lord's table. That's where we are going to, going to be this morning, backing up a little bit. Mark 14, beginning at verse 1. And what I'm going to do this, this service, I'm going to read through the whole passage. And What I want to invite you to do is tune your mind to watch for parallels. Especially around the center of the story, you'll see some things said a couple of times. There'll be some parallels. I'll point them out specifically later, but just have your mind open to that as we read. It was now two days before the Passover, Mark chapter 14 and verse 1, before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at a table. And a woman came with an alabaster, alabaster flask, or an alabastron, of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask, and she poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that, pouring it out over Jesus? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. I think in terms of our economy today, maybe thirty dollars or $40,000. That's how much this flask was worth. It could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. He sought an opportunity to betray him. So, in these first 11 verses... We start out with the, there's, there's this desire to trap Jesus. They want to take him, but they got to do it quietly. Passover is a time when the city of Jerusalem is overflowing with people. People have traveled in not only from all around Israel, but they've traveled from far around the world, all over the Roman Empire. They have come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the, the feast of Passover. And when they're gathered for Passover, they're remembering God's great deliverance of another power that oppressed and ruled over God's people Israel. They remember the time in Egypt and how God with a strong arm and his mighty power, he delivered them and brought them into new life in this very land that God gave them. And now, here in this land, they're ruled by Romans. And yet, according to the prophets, there's expectation now is the time for deliverance. And there has been this this messianic figure, this prophet Jesus traveling the country doing all kinds of miracles and saying God's kingdom is at hand and there's an expectation in the air 
And Passover was a time for riots. It was a time when the people could easily be provoked against their Gentile rulers, against their Roman rulers. It had happened many Passovers previously, sometimes even provoked by antics and crudeness of the Roman soldiers. Many people would be killed. It was at times a bloodbath. And so the rulers are, are, are trying to avoid that. They're trying to avoid a riot. And yet they're afraid of what Jesus might do if they, if they don't do something. In the, midst, in the midst of that, there's this scene just outside Jerusalem. Just up over the hill of the Mount of Olives, across from the temple. Back behind the Mount of Olives, there's a little village of Bethany. And that's where Jesus seems to be staying, and he's invited to the home of a man named Simon. Simon was a leper. Simon was probably a leper who was healed. And this is not just a stop-by visit, you know, check in on the guy who was a leper who was healed, see how he's doing. No, they're, they, they recline at table with him. This is a long, extended, sharing food together meal, unexpected. And in the midst of that meal, there's a woman who approaches. And she could have been mistaken for somebody else who's serving the table, somebody else while they're reclining there. And Jesus is at one end, maybe the place of honor, so that she would have easy access to him as she comes in. Maybe she's bringing something else to place on the table. But as, they, as she comes in and they look, it's this alabastron. That's the Greek word. Now, an alabastron initially meant a a very intricate and expensive stone bottle carved out of alabaster that was often used to hold a very expensive ointment. But along the way into the first century, such flasks of ointment were normally kept in a glass bottle instead. There was a lot of Roman glass production, and the benefit of glass was a very expensive ointment that shouldn't be open to the air because it could be polluted things might get into it. It could be diluted. Even flies could get into the ointment. You've probably heard of that. It could be diluted by somebody unscrupulously. It smells the same, but it's, they've been able to spread it out over more bottles now. Not that they would ever do that. Uh, it, it, it might um, just, if, the, if, it was left un, if it was left opened, it would uh, lose some of its aroma just out into the air and it would be gone. And so it needed to be sealed, and the glass bottle could more easily be properly sealed. The glass could be reheated at the top of a long, of a long stem up to about um, five, 600 degrees, and, and it could be pinched off. And it would be soft enough then, it could be pinched off and closed and sealed, and yet the bottle remaining intact, and because that's up at the neck, it's not hot enough down low in order to, in order to damage the ointment. And now it's a sealed flask. It's an unopened package. Nobody's going to use just a, a spot of it. Nobody's going to leave it open accidentally. Nobody's gonna, no flies are going to get into the ointment. Nobody's going to be able to dilute the ointment. It's going to retain its value of over 300 denarii. And she comes in with this flask, this alabastron, and she breaks it open because on a glass bottle like this, that's the only way to get it open. You break off the top neck. It's a fragile neck, and it's meant to break open, and then you can now use the contents. But there's no way to seal it again. There's no wine stopper that nicely fits in there. Now it's going to be used. And something like this was saved for a very special purpose. 
Well, it's a very special occasion. She comes into the room. And she begins to pour, she breaks open that bottle. She opens the seal. She begins to pour it out on Jesus' head. And the disciples are watching this. And what would you think they would do? What would you think we would do when we would see somebody take something of great cost, of great worth, that is a a great sacrifice, and they pour that out in Jesus' name to honor and worship him? You would think that we would say, praise God, hallelujah, amen. It doesn't quite go that way. We're told in the story that the disciples' reaction among, well, we're told at first, hmm, we're told that as she does this, there were some who said to themselves, what a waste. What a waste of perfectly good, very expensive ointment, pouring it out on Jesus like that. What a waste. You didn't expect that coming in the story, did you? As we were reading it, that that, that shouldn't be what happens next in this this fairly private um, engagement here in this, this home in Bethany. Well, who were these people? How did they get in there? Well, if you compare the story over to the Gospel of John, in John chapter 12, you find out that those who grumbled were the disciples. The disciples, the 12, they are the ones who grumble against her. She breaks the bottle. She pours out extravagantly. We don't even know who she is. She's a woman. A random woman, just some lady, happens to come in. They mistake her probably for servants, and she pours it out. We don't even know who she is. She pours out this great sacrifice. And what she tells us, if I could give one piece of the message to you to take home, it is this. Go ahead and break the bottle. It's no good saving the cookies for later. It's no good just sticking them into the cupboard and finding them in October past their date, right? Take that into what it is that God puts in our hands that he would have us to use in extravagant worship to him and go ahead and break the bottle. That which he leads you to do with that which he's put in your hands, go ahead, break the bottle. Now, I don't know what that means for you. What is it that we can give? Well, we have treasure, time, talent, testimony. Let's talk about treasure, shall we? Let's talk about money. In, in the, the pattern in the church, been practiced in the church universally the last 2,000 years. Well, I should say it's been spoken of in the church, not necessarily practiced. Is, is a 10%, 10% of that which we give to the Lord or, or 10% of that which God provides for us, we give back to him. De- devote to his purposes, his work, his ministry in whatever way. And, and that, that pattern comes to us out of Israel. Israel gave a tithe, and they would give a tithe of this and also a tithe of that. So sometimes it was considerably more than 10%. But the law called for a tithe. The, the law used that language. Where did that come from? Did God just need some regular income? Well, you go before the law, all the way back to Abraham. And when Abraham rescues Lot, and when Abraham is given this deliverance by God and God provides for him, Abraham takes and gives a tenth of that back to the high priest Melchizedek. 
So Abraham gives the tenth before Moses was ever there to tell him to do so. That was just a pattern, and that's why the pattern has continued, both in the law and then after the law, even in the church today. We're not required. You must do this. And yet the pattern is there for us to follow as we follow Abraham by faith. But many would say, 10%, come on, you've got other needs. You've got, you've got requirements. There's other stuff you need to do with that. And sometimes that's a conversation even in families with couples. Can we really, should we really do that? And there's tension there. We've talked as a church about the need sooner or later to replace our education building. And we projected, what would the cost be if we were to do that today? What would the cost be if we did that five years, 10 years, 15 years from now when the cost goes up? And you start putting those millions of dollars into perspective and you say, wow, that's a lot of money. How can we sit all of that money into a building? And yet we're so grateful that a generation or two ago, others soaked what was to them that kind of money into this building and into that building, and into that building, and even into the white clapboard building before it, and even back in 1863 into a log cabin church schoolhouse that they built at the same time they built their own homes in order that the church would gather in worship. And it took a cost. There's a sacrifice. We only have so much time. We only have 24 hours in any given day. We only have seven days in a week, 52 weeks in a year. What are we going to do with the time that we have? How we balance and budget that is going to at times call for sacrifice. Do I have time to give myself away for? Maybe others have more time than I do. Nobody has more time than you do. Did you know that? Nobody has more time. I don't know how much time you've got left. Neither do you. But nobody has more time today or tomorrow or the next day than you do. Every one of us gets the same 24 hours. It's a matter of what we do with it. Not all of us, we have the same time, not all of us have the same talents, not all of us have the same giftings, the same skills, the same abilities, the same sensitivities. And so there comes some individual shaping of what is it that God has put in my hands that he hasn't put in your hands. He put this bottle in her hands and he didn't put it in their hands. And there are things that he's put in your hands that we don't think we're special. We underestimate our own gifting by the Spirit and how God would be pleased to to use us. And yet, that which he has given you to be, this is something that he's put in your hands in order to give back to him in extravagant service or worship in some way. It's not a matter of what should somebody else do, it's what can or should I do. What do you assume that somebody else would do instead? How others would serve and meet a need instead when somehow God's shown it to you also? Compare that to the assumptions of the disciples. Because Jesus is worth our extravagant worship, but sacrifices our time, our talent, our treasure, and yet there will always be those who assume differently. Not only concerning what they do, but concerning what you do. So go ahead, break the bottle. Worship the Lord extravagantly. Sacrifice to him when it costs you, but when you break the bottle, beware the sharp edges. Others will criticize. Others will grumble. Others will even attack. Others will say, what a waste. 
they could have done this or that instead. Did you catch the disciples' reaction? Why was this ointment wasted? It could have been sold for 300 denarii, and it could have been given to the poor. And they grumbled among themselves first, and then they scolded her. There's a lot to learn about ourselves here. They grumble among themselves. Isn't it fascinating? They talk to themselves about what she's doing. Do any of them know what she's doing? Do they even know why she's doing what she's doing? Did any of them see that coming? They're all ignorant about this, and yet that's who they're talking to about it. It's kind of like, I think I've shared this before, but when we were missionaries in Africa, there was a problem among the team. We had Swazis, we had missionaries. Missionaries came from various countries around the world, but there was certainly a, a, a distance, a gap in understanding between the Western missionaries and the local Swazi staff. And we couldn't have done what we did without each of those two groups working together. But there were often tensions between the two, as there are in any multicultural setting. And when there were misunderstandings, the Swazis on the team would typically talk to other Swazis about what those crazy missionaries do. And why did they act like that? At the same time, the missionaries, in the midst of some misunderstanding, would talk to other missionaries, other Westerners, about what are these Swazis doing? What are they thinking there? If you wanted to really know, instead of justify yourself in the midst of it, you would go over and ask those Swazi, hey, what's going on here? Why? I, I don't understand this. Can you help me with this? What could the disciples have done differently instead of grumbling among themselves? They could have said, Jesus, we don't understand what's happening here. Can you help us to understand this? That for us would be what? That would be prayer. What, what if, instead of grumbling to one another about others, our first stop was prayer? That would probably change a lot. They call it a waste, but they are both insensitive in the moment for speaking that way to her in the midst of her giving, and they are wrong in their assumptions. It's not a waste at all. They don't see the whole picture. But because they don't see the real picture, they oppose their own agenda. This should have been sold and given to the poor. And you know who came up with that idea? Again, I've got to borrow from John chapter 12 here. It was Judas. Judas is the first one to say, what a way. She should be taking that. I mean, you, that's a pile of money if you convert that to cash. That could go into the poor chest or the poor bag that, and, and, and taking care of needs. I mean, we're, we're starting a revolution here. Messiah is going to get started. We're, we're throwing off the Romans. We're going to need some finances for this. And John 12 says, well, Judas said that because Judas also was the keeper of the bag. And he used to take coins out of the bag. Judas wanted her to put the, the money into the bag so that Judas, considering himself part of the poor, could take the money out of the bag. He had his own self-serving agenda. And could it be, could it be, brothers and sisters, that, that somewhere behind our criticism of somebody else, there's something of our own self-serving agenda. Even if it's criticizing simply so, we will seem better, wiser, more whatever in comparison to them. There could be something of that in our tendency to grumble among ourselves and then that grumbling that leads to open criticism. We live in a judgmental generation, don't we? That's what makes Facebook work after all. 
I mean, you see that in the, the, the division over anything, any issue. Let me give you one big Big current event. I was stunned when I saw this on the news that, that an American drone had taken out this Iranian general. That is a big deal. And everybody is all over the place on we should have or we should not have. I'm here to answer that for you. Should we have done that as, as a nation? Should we have not done that as a nation? I don't know. Unless some of you have some connections that I didn't realize, you don't know either. How could we? We aren't informed about these things. There's a whole bunch of that picture that we don't understand. And I'm, I'm actually grateful that in the midst of those kind of decisions, that I'm not the one pulling the trigger on them. Even with all the extra intel and information that I could have if I was at that desk, I'm glad I'm not because there's always more that you don't know, isn't there? So somebody's got to make those decisions in real time, certainly. But it's not my role to second-guess them when I know far, far less except how much I value my own opinion on almost anything. Right? <laughs> that I do know. That I'm pretty aware of. Maybe like Judas, our grumbling about others actually reveals issues, things that are going on with us. They scolded her. Grumbling, talking amongst ourselves, often then leads into open attacks against others. The one goes to the other. Now, now, now there's a balance here for discussion. There's a balance here for wisdom to be spoken in. We need to be engaged in the lives of others so that we can speak wisdom into one another's lives. But that done gently and carefully and in love by the leading of the Spirit, not on the basis of our own opinions in ways that serve our own agenda. I met a, I met a young couple in the first service. They were visiting here with the two little girls. And I was delighted to have them. We welcomed them, and we greeted them and introduced ourselves, talked a little bit. And I said, I'd love to get together, tell more about our church. I said, but my goal would not be to draw you in and, 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 and get you into Brush Prairie Church. That would not be my goal. My goal, because they, said that they mentioned that they were now in the process of looking for a church, and they wanted to find a church so they could settle down. My goal would be to help you find that, because I know that's what your family needs. And it might be here. But I want to help you find that, that if it's here or if it's somewhere else that we might actually be able to point you towards. Because my goal is not how we might use them, but it's how we might serve them and how they can put roots down and begin to grow and serve the Lord in the company of other growing believers. That's our ultimate goal. So there's a balance with criticism. There's a balance with, 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 from, from critiquing to criticism and the ability to be able to speak into one another's lives but be very, very, very careful how that is done in ways that are not criticism. And, and one of the measures, if you talk to the person, there's more of a chance. It's not, go, it, it's not given, but there's more of a chance that you're going to be a little more sensitive rather than if you're talking to somebody else about them, you know, the old prayer request thing. Pray for this person because, oh, man, they are being an idiot about this. Better, Lord, we don't understand why, why, why is it that? Or maybe, Mary, it seems, you know, I, we don't understand what you're doing here. Could you, could you help us to understand what's happening? So go ahead and break the bottle. But because we are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our, our Savior, this is the church, there will be criticism. 
I'll warn you right up front, folks. Somebody in this church is going to hurt you. Somebody in this church is going to disappoint you. I am so sorry. Please don't leave when it happens. It might be me. Sooner or later, it will be me. <laughs> it's a liability I have. It's, it's, it's not good in pastoring, I tell you. But, but when that happens, because this is who we are, but don't leave, don't run, don't hide. Trust yourself in the Lord's hands. He's good for Mary here. Even if somebody else grumbles, even if somebody else hurts you, even if somebody else misunderstands, do not. You don't need to withdraw. You can stand there because Jesus himself stands with you. And he'll sort it out. You can give yourself to the Lord extravagantly, even in the midst of sharp edges, because you can trust Jesus to vindicate you. In fact, that's the point of Mark 14. That's the point of the story. The point of the story isn't, look what she did. The point of the story is, look what Jesus does for her. Let me show that to you. There's something called a chiasm here, and I've pointed this out before. I know I've, I've, I've shared this passage in this church before, and, and, but, but, but the structure, the parallels of the passage form what's a, a, a something that's called a chiasm. It's named after the Greek letter key, which is in, in the shape of our letter X. And so you have this, uh, the, these two diagonals, and it's two pointed coming together to a center, so things are drawing into the center. There's parallels on the outside. Then next parallels in. Let me show you what it looks like. Up here on the screen. This is the, 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 the passage in a nutshell. Starts out, time draws short. At the end, Judas is seeking an opportune time. There's little time. There's, there's only a short window here. There's not much time. B, the priests are seeking to destroy Jesus, but they fear the people all around him. At the end of the story, in verse 10, one of his own people closest to him is the one who's going to betray him. In verse 3, the woman comes in. She's unnamed. We don't know who she is. She's a nobody as far as we know. At the end of the story, in, in verse 9, the woman will be well-known. She goes from unnamed to well-known. The woman anoints his head in verse 3. Jesus reinterprets that in verse 8. She's anointed my body for burial. The disciples criticize her. Jesus defends her. The money should have been given to the poor, they say. Jesus says, you can give to the poor anytime. Don't use that as your excuse to criticize somebody. Somebody else should have given to the poor, but you go ahead. You can give to them anytime you want. He said, they'll always be poor people. But Jesus says, me, you don't always have. And then the center point, there's no double parallel for this one, or you could draw it out, but they would go together right in the middle, and that's leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why her do you criticize? It's emphatic. It's the, we, we read it, why do you criticize her? And, but the her is moved forward in the Greek, so it's why her of all people to criticize? You want to criticize some of this? Plenty of people. Look at those Pharisees. Why her of all people would you criticize? That's what Jesus is saying. She's the one here that's got it right. And she's the one you choose to criticize. Go ahead and break the bottle. Give yourself to the Lord extravagantly because you know Jesus himself will vindicate your extravagant service of worship. He will be the one to give the true measure of its worth. He will be the one to reward you extravagantly. Jesus takes her side. When nobody else stands with her, and those who should have don't. If anybody should have been with her, it was the 12. If anybody should have been with her, even if Judas wasn't, the 11 should have been. And they were not. So easily we get caught up in the grumbling of others. Guard yourself from the grumbling of others. 
But Jesus gives the true measure of what she's doing. He said, she has anointed my body for burial. What is that? What's, what's, what's going on here? I mean, don't you normally do that after somebody dies? After somebody dies, you take the body and then you anoint it for burial, right? Jesus is about to die. He's going to die on the cross. And they're going to, in a hurry, take his body down from the cross because Passover, or because the Sabbath is coming and the sun is about to go down when nobody can do anything. And so they quickly move his body into a grave and they close it and they seal it. And they're going to come back after the Sabbath and then they can finish the preparations. They can anoint the body just over a day later, a day and a half later on the third day. So what do the ladies do? They show up early in the morning on Sunday, early on the third day. Sabbath has ended. You know, I go to the Sabbath ended at nightfall the day before. They're not going to the graveyard in the dark. Okay, they're waiting for the sunrise, right? So they come along and they, they come back and they, they come on Sunday morning. They're there early. Sun's coming up. Who's gonna? They get there and they're too late. That doesn't mean they shouldn't have come. Sure, they should have come. But they're not going to do. They come with the spices and the ointments to anoint his body for burial properly. It's the last thing that they can do to honor the one whom they loved and who loved them. But they don't get that chance. The body's not there. They think it's been taken. No, it's been risen. But the body's not there. And nobody, when the next they see him, nobody's thinking anointing body for burial. (laughs) No, no, that's not what they're thinking at all. So... Nobody gets the chance except Mary. Mary gets the chance to do what nobody else could do, and the point is this, she didn't. I don't think she knew it. I don't think she knew at the time. I think what she knew at the time was Jesus is worth this. Maybe that her, the anointing to her was she anoints his head. Well, that's what you do to prophet, priest, and king. Maybe she is recognizing him for herself as the Messiah who all of her hope for the future is in him. So whatever she has can be extravagantly poured out upon him because he is worth it all. He is God's son. He is the Messiah, and she knows it. She believes it. Maybe that's what she sees, but Jesus sees even more than that. Jesus assigns the true meaning of her worship's worth. Only she could do it. Nobody else would have the chance to honor him in a proper anointing for burial. Think about it. While he's taken later, while he's beaten, and then he's thrown in a dungeon cell awaiting the time when the Sanhedrin's going to bring him over to, to Pilate. While he's there in that cell, and it probably stinks like feces and urine and and sweat and blood, and yet in the midst of that, there is this beautiful aroma that filled the room in Bethany, that filled heaven itself as it was poured out, and now lingers even in that filthy cell, there in his hair and down his body. He's already been honored and anointed for burial. She didn't know. We don't know the full reach of that which we do. Mom, staying home with children, perhaps you've given up in income the job that you had in order to do that. And maybe, you, maybe somebody's thinking, what a waste. You could be bringing more money into the family. You know, you could pay somebody else to look after the kids. Maybe you're falling behind on your career. Are you going to be able to get those years back? 
Is this wasted time? Mom, you don't know the reach and the impact and the effect of the time that you're able to devote yourself to those children, the difference it's going to make, however much time that is. It's like working in nursery or pre-K. You don't know the impact on those kids. It's like any kids ministry, Awana, Sunday school. You don't know the difference you'll make with those kids, and you don't know the difference it's making for mom and dad. Maybe that's a young couple, and that's the only time they get in the week really to be undistractedly focusing on worshiping the Lord and feeding on his word because you're looking after, loving, looking after those kids during that time. You don't know the difference it might make. Time spent maybe listening to a friend or listening to stuff going on in life with a coworker. You take the time to listen. You've got other stuff to do. You need to get this done today, but you'll give this time. You'll give this moment. You'll give these minutes because they're talking and they need somebody to listen. And you don't know the difference your listening makes. You don't know the difference that as you listen, the trust that builds that might cause them also to listen to you because you've also got something that they need to hear. Maybe there's a chance in there to say, I'll be praying for you and mean it and continue the conversation with them. You could do more at work, maybe. You could be more ambitious. You could go farther. You could accomplish more. But you guard your margin. You're willing to give up or to give to others an opportunity and an assignment that could make a professional difference. But you guard your margins, even from your own ambitions, because it's also important that you have time for knowing God and pursuing his ambition in the midst of life. Jesus is the one that will give the true worth. You don't know the difference out of what you do, the difference it'll make. But go ahead and break the bottle. Go ahead and do that which will cost you. Time, treasure, testimony, your talents. Go ahead and break the bottle. Worship the Lord extravagantly. Even if others don't understand, even if somebody else will criticize, Jesus himself will vindicate you. Jesus himself will give the true measure of your work. And Jesus will reward you extravagantly. What does Jesus say about this woman? He says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be told concerning her. Wherever the gospel. We don't even know who she is in Mark 14. 30 years after the fact, when Mark writes his gospel, 20-something or 30 years, when Mark writes his gospel, her story's there, her story's told, right in the height, right in the, in the, in the peak of the story, here's this woman. We don't know who she is, but what she's done is told in memory 30 years later. 30 years later from then, when John writes his gospel, maybe early in the 90s, in Asia, around Ephesus, all the church in Asia not only hears her story, but they learn her name. Who to us was before unnamed, John tips his hand, shows her name. This is Mary, the sister of Martha, the brother of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. She had every reason to know that she could trust whatever was in her hands, in his hand and on his head, because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Maybe she did knew there wouldn't be a time after his death to anoint the body. Maybe she had been listening. Maybe she had caught that. How do I know? 
that you can break the bottle, you can worship the Lord extravagantly, that the Lord will vindicate you, the Lord will make it worth it, the Lord will give the true measure of worth. How do I know that the Lord will reward you extravagantly? How do, you, how do I know that what you pour out, he will return upon you? We're a long way from Bethany. That's how I know. We're a long way from Bethany. We're a long time from Bethany. It's 2,000 years ago, and here we are again. I can't get away from the story. I told you before, i got to tell you again. We're talking about this woman. We're talking about Mary and what she did, just as Jesus said that we would. It's not just I'm filling the square. I'm, 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 I'm talking about this this morning because we obviously are supposed to now and again. No, I'm talking about it, and you're listening because this is a wonderful story. This is encouraging you. This is stretching you to be willing yourself to break the bottle, to serve God in some way that seems costly and extravagant, and yet Jesus is worth it. That's what the story does for us, and Jesus said it would. He said wherever the gospel is proclaimed, because this, there's something of the gospel here. Jesus himself poured out, and can't you imagine all of heaven saying, can't you imagine the angels looking at that? He's going to do what for them? Oh. And they're amazed still at the difference his death and life has made in your life. They never saw it coming. They're amazed. And angels continue to look in and to watch and look what God has done by the death of his son. That's why her story is told, because her story mirrors exactly as any of our sacrificial service of worship. What it does is it mirrors, it shows something, it displays something of the sacrificial worship of Jesus himself, of giving his life in the Father's will for us. Without sacrifice, there is no worship. Jesus showed us that. This woman shows us that. We're a long way from Bethany, 2,000 years later, and you cannot get physically much farther from Bethany than here. And yet we are talking about Mary and what she did, just as Jesus said we would. I don't know what, what giving, what ways that cost you, in ways that only you comprehend, but God has set a bottle in your hands. God has put things of worth that he's entrusted to you. It might be treasure. It certainly is time. It might be your testimony, that which you have to tell of what God has done for you and at the risk of that what, which others will think about you. It might be talents, things that you're quite sure that others could do better than you. And yet, God has given it to you. And maybe... All those other people you think get it and see it and will probably do it instead, maybe none of them will. And maybe God's okay with that because God intends this to be the place, that to be the way where you pour yourself out. The grumbling was about looking at others. Mary's part here was about looking at Jesus. And that's where I want to be. That's where you want to be. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to do that? In the midst of so many distractions, Lord, would you, Father, would you help us to look to Jesus, to see what he has done, to get a sense of what he is doing, 
to be willing, Father, to pour out ourselves there. God, would you honor it? Would you use it? Father, forgive me in that this message is not all about the, at all about the offering we are now going to receive. But Father, would you use this offering as an opportunity perhaps? Whether it's in that which you have entrusted to us that we give back to you, whether it's an indication on that communication card about this is how God is telling me to serve him. Lord, would you give us the courage to follow the leading of your spirit, even in this offering, that we would pour out what you've given to us in extravagant worship of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.